Open up your Bible. We're going to look at a, a you're going to need your Bible a little bit today because we're going to jump around, do things a little bit differently today. But open up to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. This is Paul writing. So this is a, this is a, a verse about speech, about speaking, about words. And Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 4, verse 29. He, he wrote this to them, and this is God's, he was inspired by God. Uh, and so this, this, what he wrote to the Ephesians applies to us as well. This is God's word. This is what he speaks to us. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The very existence of a command like this, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but what should come out of our mouths? What should come out of our mouths is stuff that's good for building up, as fits the occasion, that gives grace to those who hear. So there's a, there's a contrast there. There's, there's some things we shouldn't let come out of our mouths, and there's some things that should come out of our mouths. The very existence of the command means that the possibility exists for us to actually let corrupting things come out of our mouths and to actually not let things that build up, things that give grace to those who hear, come out of our mouths when they should. That's why the command exists. Aren't you? I'm waiting for the day. There is coming a day where there will be no need for scriptural commands. Aren't you glad? In heaven, no one will have to be reminded, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Only, only share things that would build somebody up. In heaven, that command will be obsolete because sin will be no, long, no more. Sin will be no longer. Listen to this quote that I read as we get started. Alexander White, Scottish pastor in the 1800s. It's a long one. Listen. Since we all have a tongue, and since so much of our time is taken up with talk, a simple catalog of the sins of the tongue is enough to terrify us. Maybe. What I mean by maybe is maybe we're terrified by that. I think what he's saying is we should be terrified by that. The sins of the tongue take up a march, much larger space in the Bible than we would believe till we have begun to suffer from other people's tongues, and especially from our own. The Bible speaks a great deal more and a great deal plainer about the sins of the tongue than any of our pulpits do. than any of our pulpits dare to do. Let's dare to do it. Who's with me? Let's dare to, to look at what God's word has to say about these things because the Bible has a lot to say about our words and our tongues. This morning starts a three, sermon, three sermons that are going to be connected in this Sticks and Stones series. And I've I'm calling it Big Mouth Strikes Again. 
Um, and for all of my, I'm looking out at my, my yes, my, all my 80s music friends are saying, I know where you got that. For those of you who don't know, that's a, a, a famous song by the band The Smiths. You can look it up and it'll trouble you in some ways if you listen to it. <laughs> Big Mouth Strikes Again. Today, we're going to talk about how Big Mouth Strikes Again in the form of gossip and slander. Next week, Big Mouth Strikes Again, anger. The following week, Big Mouth Strikes Again, complaining and grumbling. We actually met as a group a group of us met and brainstormed this, and we wrote down all the ways in which, and all the different sins that we see the Bible talking about uh, with our tongues, and we, we, we looked at all of them, and then we prioritized them, and we felt like these three were the most important for us as a church. Gossip and slander, angry words, and complaining and grumbling words. Here's my main point today. I think too often... Many Christians live with a failure to acknowledge, this is long, right? Follow me. I think too often many Christians live with a failure to acknowledge the disconnect that exists between their words and their heart. I think too often... Too many Christians live with a failure to acknowledge, a failure to see the disconnect that exists between their mouths and their hearts. And what I want us to do in this, in this series, this is why this whole series has been designed, is we want to see actually the connection that, there, that exists between our words, our hearts, and our professions of faith. Amen? I hope you're with me in that. I want you to battle the temptation. I was talking to somebody just this last week, and it's happening with me. I hope this is happening with you. It was happening with him. We were having this conversation, and we were saying, man, I am really paying attention to my words this week. I'm really, that's what God's word wants to do. I have too. There have been numerous occasions where our family has stopped it and said, we, you can't, we can't say that. You cannot say that and please Jesus. I cannot say that. I've asked for forgiveness at least two times this week because I said something that I've gotten used to saying that I realized that does not, that's not the accent of heaven. That does not sound like Jesus. I hope that's happening for all of you. What we have to do in sermons like this, I say gossip and slander, and you go, oh, I can get my to-do list done for next week because I don't gossip and I don't slander. First of all, yes, you do. I hope to convince you of that. But we've got to battle the temptation regularly to think that this sermon is really important for the person sitting next to you. We've got to battle the temptation to, to think that on this topic, I'm good, but I'm sure, I sure hope so-and-so is listening. On this topic, I'm good, but I can't wait to send this sermon to, to him we got to battle the temptation to think that this sermon is for other people and not for us. God's Word always wants to address you and me. Our prayers this morning should be this. Lord, allow your Word to shape our lives and start with me. Our prayer should be, Holy Spirit, speak this morning to us and start with me. Our prayer should be, Father, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And start with me. Gossip and slander. You ready? All right. Another 80s song. One of Don Henley's famous, Don Henley was a singer for the Eagles, and he had, some, he had a solo career, and he had some big hits. One of them was Dirty Laundry. Anybody remember that one? Here's some lines from it that connect to our sermon this morning. Dirty little secrets, dirty little lies. We've got our dirty little fingers in everybody's pies. We love to cut you down to size. We love dirty laundry. And if we're honest, we would say, we love dirty laundry. I love a good bit of dirty laundry, not the real kind. The kind that comes through things that I heard said about others. We do. We, he goes on to say, he's got one of the refrains in the song is, kick them when you're up, kick them when they're down. Kick them when they're up, kick them when they're down. And that's what we do as a society. Don't we love to do that? We love to. If you're up, if you're on the rise, we love to kick you down. And if you're down already, we'll kick you then too. That's the culture we live in. We're jealous of someone else's success. And if you're not successful, we want you to stay there because we don't want you to compete with ours. This is is how we are. Proverbs 16, 28. I told you we're going to, I'm just going to read three passages of scripture to you. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, 28. And if you can't turn fast enough, that's fine. We're going to put them on the screens. We're going to put them on the screen. Listen to what Proverbs 16, 28 says as it relates to this topic of gossip and slander. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer, which could be translated and is translated in many translations, and a gossiper, a gossip, separates close friends. Proverbs 11. Skim over to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11, 13. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Powers in the word. James 4. We looked at James last week. James got a lot to say on the tongue. But look at James 4. Look at what he says here. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. I'll read it again. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now let's talk about gossip and slander this morning. One writer called them catastrophic cousins. Because... It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that those two sins, these two sins, gossip and slander, have ruined friendships, have destroyed marriages, and have completely destroyed churches. I had somebody sent me, I appreciate it, Mary sent me a blog article that she, read, that she was reading, and she, it detailed, it was a pastor's wife uh, detailing how their church and her friend's church, she has a friend who's, who's married to a pastor, the church was completely destroyed 
by slander. Completely split and now non-existent. Slander and gossip. Things that weren't true were spoken about people in the church, particularly leaders in the church, and it destroyed the church. We love, if we're honest, guys, we love gossip. Scripture talks about it as like a tasty morsel. And we're all skilled at it. Men, you're skilled at gossip. Women are skilled at gossip. Teenagers, brilliant at gossip. One of my kids had to come home early recently because of some gossip, come home early from school, because of how upset they were about something, that, uh, a gossip that was said about them and about one of their friends. We hate it when it's against us. What we fail to connect and see is that sometimes we're actually part of the problem. Think about how your ears perk up when someone begins a conversation. Hey, did you hear about our old friend? Hey, I was just with so-and-so the other day, and they told me that so-and-so is now... You got my attention. What? Those words grab our attention. Simple definition of gossip. Telling a story. Gossip is telling a story. And we love stories. Stories are actually good, right? We love stories. It's good. You say, I say once upon a time and you're all listening. We love story. Gossip is story. So it attaches to something that we're drawn to. We're drawn to story. Gossip is story that communicates bad news about another person behind that person's back. That's a simple definition. It's bad news about another person behind that person's back. Let me offer some categories, just briefly. I just want to offer some categories to you that may shine a light to help us see more clearly, to make some connections. I got these from Walt Mitchell. Here's some of the ingredients of gossip. It's bad information. It's bad info. It's often at the root of gossip. It's sharing perhaps false information, unverified information. It's spreading a rumor. Rumors about another person can be so devastating. Had you ever been on the devastating end of a rumor? Have you ever seen a rumor have its devastating effect? They're devastating because once they leave the mouth and enter into someone's ear, they're irretrievable. You can't get it back. So that's why James talks about the tongue lighting a, it's like a spark. It lights the fire. I remember once I lit a fire. I'm one of those people that loves fires. Not a pyromaniac, but I love a good campfire and I love lighting fires. And as a kid, I liked playing. I was the kid that played around with the fires. And I remember once I lit a fire that was supposed to burn, but I picked a day in which it was very dry, and I had a pile of brush to burn, and I struck the match, and I lit the fire, and that thing took off. Have you ever lit a fire that takes off? 
it took off, and the sheer force of it, like I can still hear it roaring in my ears, and it backed me up like the heat of it, and I realized I had done something that was going to result in some bad consequences. It was just a spark. And then it was out of control. That's what rumors do. Spark, and then they're out of control. This, this is so true with social media. Rumors spread uncontrollably, and they damage and destroy the reputation of people. And, and it's especially true of social media because in most social media circles, the truth isn't what matters. What matters most is if it just supports your viewpoint. We're not even verifying whether it's true or not. We just, that supports my viewpoint, so I put, it down, I put it out there, and it goes out to thousands and thousands of people and ruins and damages reputations. Are you thinking about that? You should be thinking about that. Not because you maybe are the people that are putting out those kinds of things, but that you're participating in the, the liking and the, and the loving and the, and the retweeting and spreading those things. That's wrong. I talked, with a last, I talked with a man last week who'd been hurt by a rumor spread about me. He, we got on, well, I hadn't talked to him for a long time. I had a chance to talk to him, and he shared with me how he felt like he had heard that I had mistreated Gabe. That, that in, the, in, the, in the season of sin and gospel restoration that Gabe was in, that he shared with all of us, that I had mistreated him. That I had been harsh to him and I had treated him wrongly. And I, I just, I, it caught me totally off guard. I, I did, there, was, there was absolutely zero truth to everything that he was saying. And so I was able to, I was able to just to say, it's not true. It's, it, it, this is simply not true. Let me explain to you exactly what has happened. Let me explain to you my current relationship with Gabe. And he was so relieved. Somebody told him that. He learned that from somewhere. And it stuck with him, and it, and it impacted him greatly. So it's bad info. It's also bad news about someone. It can be just bad news about someone. So, so this is when a story is shared that's actually true, but it paints a person in the worst possible light. You don't want that done to you. I don't want it. I've done some bad things in my life, and so have you. I don't want to be remembered for my worst possible moment. I don't want you to hear something bad that I've done and then, then take that to, to its, its the nth degree so that what happens is I get or you get portrayed in the worst possible light. Gospel culture is what we're trying to build here. Shelby talked about it just a minute ago. That's what we're talking. We're trying to be good news people. Which, which means then that when you show up to a small group or a missional community, you might share something like, I'm really broken, I'm really struggling, I really sinned in this way. Church, we should be building a culture that that, what is shared there, that's a sacred moment. Someone's disclosing their failures. 
And the gospel is going to, we're going to speak the gospel to them. And there's hope in the gospel for sinners. Don't we believe that? But then to leave that missional community and not steward that information well so that it was shared in a way that put that person in the worst possible light would grieve God. It's not just bad news about someone. It's not just bad information. It's bad news for someone. When you hear a gossip about a friend, this is what it does. It plants the tiniest bit of suspicion in your mind. And it builds a barrier of doubt. And so it, it's, as soon as you hear something, maybe you don't believe all of it, but there's a shred of it. I think that might be true. And so now it affects my relationship with you because someone's planted a suspicion Or if your friend gossips to you about somebody else, tell me you don't have this thought. I wonder if they do that to me <laughs> with everybody else. Now I've got a barrier. I'm not going to be as honest. I'm not going to be as transparent with you because I don't view you as someone who's trustworthy. I wonder how many of us are not viewed as trustworthy because you gossiped about someone else to one of your friends. Gossip destroys trust, church, and it creates cynicism in relationships. Gossiping words... Words kill, words give life. Which ones are gossiping words? The killing words. When Paul said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, he included gossip. He meant let no gossip, because gossip, he would, he would, he would consider gossip to be, and as we should, corrupting talk. All right, let's move on to slander. Let's move on to slander. Slander, definition. The open, intentional sharing of damaging information about another person. The open, intentional sharing of damaging information about another person. It's the triple play of sinful talk. What do I mean by that? It hurts the teller. It hurts the person who received it, the hearer. And it hurts the one that's been spoken about. It's mentioned dozens and dozens of times in the Bible. If you want to do a good word study, just do a word study this week on slander. You'll find it dozens of times in the Bible. James, we just talked about slander in James chapter 4. Don't slander. Don't speak evil against the one, one another, brothers. It's damaging communication about another person with the intention of smearing their character. That's what slander is. And it began. Do you know where it began? You guys are good with your Bibles. Genesis 3. <laughs> Does anybody know Genesis 3? That's the story of the Garden of Eden and a serpent that slips in. We know that certain serpent. We know who he is. Satan was the first slanderer. In fact, the Greek word for devil is literally translated slanderer. Satan slandered God. Remember when he came to them and he said, 
You, you, you won't surely die. He said you're going to die. You won't die. God knows when you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. The devil sought to make God out to be a liar by slandering God. God said you would die, but you won't. And then he, he, he makes God out to be a miserly deity who wants to keep himself all the power and all the good things. So he says, you could be as great as God, but he won't tell you how to do that. You see how slander begins right there in the garden and it continues and continues and continues. It's satanic speech that breaks fellowship among followers of Christ. And that's what James is saying. What are, what dri- what are the impulses that drive slander? Curiosity. We're curious people. That's a good thing. We want the news. Curiosity is fine unless it leads us down a path that tears other people down. What other impulses? We love to be at the center of attention. I got, I know something that you don't. We love that. This gives me a chance. I got some juicy information to share. It's an opportunity to elevate ourselves. That's what slander always does. It puts us in a good light and puts someone else in a bad light. One man defined it this way. To speak ill of others is a dishonest way of praising ourselves. And there's another reason why we slander. We're bitter. That's an impulse to slander when we're bitter towards someone. One of the reasons we fail to acknowledge the disconnect between our words and our heart is because we're guilty of something. And we're guilty. And I think it's, it's something that, that the devil uses against us. He used, this against, used it against Adam and Eve, and he used it, uses it against us. You know what he does? He gets us to, to think that we can mask our sins in virtue. So, so we think about gossip, and we, 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 we're not really gossips. We think about slander. No, we're really, not, we're really not slanders. And it's because we play something in our head. We play something in our head that makes the sin. That's so, it's so clear when we look at a scripture, right? But then we, we take that and we twist it a little bit. And so our head, in our head, it sounds something like this. I'm not gossiping. I'm just concerned. I'm not slandering. I just tell it like it is. I'm not slandering. I just happen to be one of those people that stands for truth. I'm a truth teller. I tell it like it is. I say what needs to be said. Do you see it? Two observations. Let me share two observations with you. Quickly, there are a lot 
of self, and I think you guys will see this, but I want you to see this because I want to make these connections. There are a lot of self-identified Christians online who are so brave and so courageous to tell it like it is. Do you detect a hint of sarcasm? They've got this courage to say what needs to be said with a budding bravery that is bolstered behind a keyboard. But, but those same Christians are much afraid of doing what Jesus has told us to do. Jesus told us when we observe someone in sin, do you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to go to your brother in private. That's Matthew 18. It's, it's right there in the scriptures. But there's a lot of us as Christians who are really afraid of doing that. We don't have the guts oftentimes to speak the truth in love in private, but we've got all kinds of bravado to speak a word of gossip or slander to the masses online. It's not right. Another observation. I think we have to make connections. We have to make connections to the things we support, the things we read, the things we laugh at. So listen to me. Let's consider how Christ feels when liberal talk show hosts and writers denigrate and deride Christians for their archaic biblical beliefs. How might Jesus feel about that? I think he's grieved. And I'll bet you I can get an amen. Amen? Amen. But let's consider how Jesus feels when our favorite conservative talk show hosts slander their opponents even other Christian leaders. I witnessed it this past week. I, I, we could, I could show you one every week. And I observe a lot of Christians laughing at it. And I wonder how Jesus feels. We're laughing. I don't think Jesus is laughing. Amen. The thing we have to realize, church, is that God wants to help us to acknowledge that there's this disconnect between our words and our hearts. 
God wants us to see. God actually wants us to see this. So if you're sitting here through this whole sermon series and you never feel convicted, you missed out. You missed out. God actually wants us to experience conviction because then the hope of the gospel gets applied. I want us to see, I want us to acknowledge that I want us to see a biblical hero who had a failure to acknowledge these things. A, bit of a person we would hold up in the Bible as a hero who, who there was a failure to acknowledge the disconnect that existed between his words and his heart. Isaiah. Scale of 1 to 10. How godly would you say Isaiah is? 1 to 10, what would you say? I'm going at least a 9. You know, Scale of 1 to 10, your godliness, Isaiah's godliness. Who going to win? And, and most of us are very familiar with a famous passage of Scripture where, where Isaiah, he was at the height of his prophetic powers. And, and he's prophesying against a rebellious nation. And the Lord in Isaiah 6, do you know what I'm talking about? In Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets this vision of the Lord in his glory. But most, what most of us don't recognize is that there were five chapters that preceded Isaiah 6. And in the five chapters that preceded Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is pronouncing judgments. He's pronouncing woes on a people who are rebellious against the Lord. He's pronouncing woes on a nation that has departed from God and his grace. And he's pronouncing these judgments. That's what these woes are. And he pronounces six of them in five chapters. And... And he's just ripping up the consciences of his contemporaries, saying, God's going to get you for this. God is going to get us. God is going to get you. And, and God's holy anger is, gonna, is burning against them. And God's going to call on the nations with arrows sharp as flint. And, he, and, and they're going to come. God's going to come with the roaring of a lion. Darkness and distress, he says, are coming. There's a terrible day of judgment that's coming for all those that have turned away from God. But any sensitive, careful reader of the Bible should be waiting for another woe. He gave them six. Seven's the number of completion. Any sensitive reader is waiting for the seventh woe. Against whom will Isaiah pronounce the ultimate woe? Isaiah sees God exalted on his throne, and he sees his majestic presence flooding the temple. Isaiah sees these holy creatures flying about, covering their faces before the glory of God, and everything about him seems to disintegrate. Everything within him seems to be disintegrating. He says he's falling apart. He gets this vision of God's glory, and he says, I'm ruined. I'm lost. The language expresses the stunned silence of a major disaster. It's the, it's the language of experiencing death. It's 
Isaiah's 9-11 moment. It's the most important moment of his life. From a place of assumed security, Isaiah has pronounced these devastating judgments. But now he realizes that the last and climactic final judgment is going to land. Where? On him. What does he say, church? Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I want to tell you, if there was anybody in the nation with clean lips, it was Isaiah. He was the prophet of the Lord. Remember, the seraphim comes to him with a coal and touches his lips. I mean, I'll bet you when Isaiah went back to the crib, you know, he, he's talking to his buddies and, and he's saying, yo, guys, I'm undone. I'm, I'm lost. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. They're like, you, he's lost it. Him, a man of unclean lips. You, a man of unclean lips. You're the prophet of the Lord. If anybody has clean lips, it's you. You're God's most prominent and most eloquent preacher. And Isaiah is making some connections between his mouth and his heart. And he's saying, you don't understand, I've seen the king. You don't understand, I've seen the Holy One of Israel, and I've felt the pollution of my tongue. The light of God has exposed the darkness of every crevice of my soul in the very gift that God has called me to use in the very area of my life where everyone calls me gifted. This is where sin has so most deeply entangled me. Woe, woe, woe is me. Got to make a connection here, church. We foolishly assume that our real struggles with sin are in the areas where we're weak. We don't understand the depth of our sin until we realize that it's at home in the areas where we think we're strong. It's in the areas that we think we're good that sin can be present in its most pervasive and perverse ways. But when we're brought to see this, when God strips us bare of all our self-deceit, when he actually shows us that we, woe is me for the way I've gossiped. Woe is me for the way I've slandered. Woe is me for the way I've used my tongue. Woe is me for the ways I haven't used my tongue. When you get to that place with God, you're in a great place because now you're saying, I need you, God. I need your grace. In the, in the areas that I thought I was strong, I'm actually weak. God leads us to repentance. And then what does he do? Do you remember how that story continues? Seraphim comes down, puts a coal on his lips. Then they say, who is it that will speak for the Lord? And what does Isaiah say? Here I am. Send me. When the grace of God comes to you, who's a, a sinner, and, and you've repented, and you've declared your need for grace, now God can make something out of you. John Newton says, the more vile we are in our own eyes, the more precious he will be in our sight. Church, there's the gospel. 
Let's not be those who fail to acknowledge the disconnect between our words and our hearts. When that disconnect exists, we're spiritually immature. God wants to make us mature. So he exposes disconnects so that he can apply the grace of the gospel and make us to be mature people. A true Christ-exalting gospel culture. May God have mercy upon us. I want us, church, to sound more like Jesus. I want us to have the accent of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for the guests that are here. I pray for conviction for words that are wrongly used. I pray for motivation to use words rightly. I pray for vision that we would see the gospel as the remedy for our troubled talk. And I pray for transformation, that you would take our words and turn them into conduits of grace.